0: This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. Well, good morning, y'all. My name is Aaron Thomas. I'm the the youth pastor here. Um, Our senior pastor, Pastor Mike, is away um, this morning, um, and I'm glad to be, to be with you, uh, to spend time again in the book of Jude. Um, before we get there, have any of you ever been to the Biltmore house in Asheville? Okay, cool. Many of you. That's awesome. Uh, the Biltmore house is, if you don't know what it is, uh, it's a really cool house. It's the largest single family home in America. And it was built at the end of the 1800s. And it's still to this day, the largest single family home in America. Which is insane. Um, it's really cool when you're there and you see all the architecture and you just see how massive it is. It's it's over 175,000 square feet inside the building. Um, it's it's wild. And you can, as you're there, if you go on a tour, you can learn about how they built it. They had to build a, like a brick kiln on site instead of shipping bricks in. They made bricks on the property. They built. Uh, Saw Mills, there was a ton of work that went into to putting the Biltmore House together. And if, if you've been once, you know that it's impossible to see all that there is to see on that one tour. Um, it's worth visiting, in my opinion, if, if you have the money and the time and you're into history and that sort of thing. Um, but you can't see it all one time. It's something you want to go back to again. And our time in the book of Jude, I think, is like that. And honestly, any time we walk through a book of the Bible as a church family together, it's going to be like that. Where we're going to spend some time talking about certain things. But just because we walk through the book together does not mean that we've gotten all that there is to get out of it. So the book of Jude, we're spending four weeks in it. We could spend years in the book of Jude. And I hope that at the end of our time today and the end when we finish up the book of Jude next week, um, that you will be encouraged to go back to it and spend spend more time in it. But the last time I was at the Biltmore House, uh, it was years and years ago uh, while Jenna and I – I say years and years. Some of y'all – think that I'm like five minutes old so it feels like years and years to me it was like 2010 so like 14 years ago whatever that is to you uh but we were there Jen and I were there with friends and in 2010 she was in college I was working full-time and also in school so like we didn't have any money uh, and while you're at the Biltmore house, because it is so big, you're walking around a ton, and you get tired, and you get hungry. And there are signs saying, hey, go this way, and you'll find something to eat. And on those signs, you might see something that says, hey, there are, there's ice cream that's made from Biltmore cows. Like cows on the property, milk, and this homemade ice cream. And so we got excited about the possibility of homemade ice cream, and we went to that little shop. But then when we got there... I don't know what the reason was. There was no homemade ice cream from Biltmore Cows. There was pet ice cream. And it cost $8. And like, I can get pet at food line. I'm not paying 8 We didn't have no money. We weren't paying $8. I remember G- Jenna saying, I ain't paying $8 for no pet. It was, it was just... It's not that pet ice cream is bad, pet ice cream is delicious, but we were expecting something different, and so it seemed weird to us that we were going to get homemade ice cream, and instead we were, we were offered pet. Uh, and there are some things in Jude that are a little bit like that. It's not that they're bad, but they're weird and maybe seem out of place, and we're going we're gonna to deal with them on some level today, but there's much more study that could be done about those things, and we'll talk about them as we get to them. Um, Forgive me. My mouth is really dry this morning. Um, okay. In this passage, as we I'm sorry as we encounter those things, we want to remember that Jude was one of Jesus's brothers. And Jude is writing to a group of believers who have had false teachers come in to their churches and start leading them astray, teaching them wrong things, turning them against Jesus and towards themselves. So Jude wanted them to remember who they were in Christ, that they've been bought, called, loved, and kept. And also he wanted them to have a firm grasp on their faith that had been passed and then to them once for all. And he wants them to do this because he knows that that is how you fight false teachers when you know what the scriptures say, as as Brother Mike was saying earlier, when you know what the scriptures say and you're firm in the doctrine or the teachings of the church, then you can refute wrong teaching when you see it and when you hear it. So if you haven't already opened your Bible to the book of Jude, uh, I encourage you to do that, or Bible app, whatever you're using. Uh, if you're in a physical Bible, Jude is right before the last book, and it's only a single page. And we're we're going to cover a, a large section of Jude today. We're going to start in verse 5 and go through verse 19, and I'm going to read all of that right now, and then we'll walk through it together. So Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling He has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body... He did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast, and they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness forever. It was about these that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, The Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends... Remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly not having the spirit. Ah, Let's pray. Ah, Father, God, we, we need you. We always need you. And we need you now today. We ask that you help us to think rightly about your judgment let you help us see the things in ourselves that we need to change help us to see the amazing grace that sets us free in your son jesus we love you and praise you amen all right our uh, our main point from today is since false teachers and those led astray and since false teachers and those led astray by them will be judged believers must watch themselves and do what they can to protect others. And you probably noticed there's a lot of judgment in this passage that we just read and we're going to go through. And judgment is hard to talk about. We don't like to think about it because when we think about it, it, it like makes us feel like God is angry and vengeful. It, it can be hard to reconcile the judgment of God with the love of God. And the, the seemingly angry God of the Old Testament with the loving, merciful God of the New Testament. But judgment is not always bad. And judgment is connected to love. If you love someone, you will punish those who hurt them. Even if that means you have to punish the one you love. Like, I keep using parents as an analogy because I am one. It's like the life I'm living right now, so forgive me. But a good parent would do everything in their power to protect their child from someone who came to do them harm. A good parent would do that. And that is passing judgment on the intruder, on the one who would bring harm. And a good parent will also discipline their child if the child is behaving in a way that is destructive to the child's life and relationships, and that is bringing judgment on the child. Failing to do either one of those things would be unjust. You would be an unjust parent if you did not protect your children from outsiders who want to hurt them and from themselves. You would would not be protecting your child from the evil outside or the evil inside. Uh, I, I hope this quote is helpful. It's from Jackie Hill Perry. And she's talking about God's judgment. She says, in an attempt to justify their belief that God isn't antagonistic towards sin, there are those that will say, God is love. They most likely don't realize, don't realize it, but what they're ultimately claiming is that God is unjust. And I want to clarify that because God is love is in Scripture. I referenced that last week. God, God is love. But if we try to use the idea that God is love to dismiss any concept of his judgment, then what we're saying is that God loves us, but he's not going to do anything about those who hurt us. And that God loves us, so he's not going to do anything about sin. And that would be wrong. Love and judgment go together. So when we talk about God's judgment of sin, we need to remember that it's not about him paying people back for, the wrong, for their wickedness. It's not God trying to get them back for it. It's about him protecting his good creation from that which would destroy it. So as we talk about false teachers, first, false teachers hurt themselves and they hurt others. In verse 5, Jude start, or goes into, Now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, is it, and remind and remember is an important word in the book of Jude. It's an important word in our faith because we are quick to forget. And Jude says to these, these believers, remember what you've already learned. In verse 3, he said that they, they had their faith was delivered to them once for all. And so he's reminding them back to that saying, you already know this. You already believe this. You know what I'm about to tell you. And uh, this is a, a weird connection. But the other day, uh, our kids were playing in the front yard unsupervised which usually means that someone's going to cry. Like it just happens, either out of anger or sadness. Tears are coming. Uh, so they were outside. They were riding bicycles in the front. Uh, I wasn't, I think I was upstairs. Jenna was downstairs. And she hears the crash. And then our youngest one comes in and just like busts through the door. And it just stands there and like has this sort of surprised look on her face. And Jenna looks at her like, is everything okay? But she didn't say anything. Faith didn't say anything. So then Jenna goes, uh, hey, Faith. And Faith says, I'm just getting some water. <laughs> and then you can hear Eva crying outside. And Jenna goes, Faith, is, is Eva okay? And she goes, no, go out there. <laughs> it's better to be told or reminded than not be told at all. And he continues in verse 5. He says, remember these things. That Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And your translations may, may say, instead of Jesus, it may say the Lord. But Jesus is Lord. He was there when all things were created. And he was there when Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh was forcing God's people, Israel, to work for him to build pharaoh's kingdom and that happened for 400 years god's people suffered 400 years is hard for us to think about that's much longer than america has even existed as we know it as a nation 400 years is a long time for god's people to suffer and god heard their cries against their oppressors and then he delivered them to safety in a miraculous way you can read about it in the book of exodus it's incredible it's been a long time since read it go back and read it again uh, but read john 17 first um the the uh, final miracle or the, the sort of finality of God's deliverance is the parting of the Red Sea. And when through Moses, God parts the Red Sea so that God's people could walk through that seabed on dry ground. And God blocked the entrance to that path so that Pharaoh and his men could not get to them. And then Once once his people were safe on the other side, God allowed Pharaoh to to choose if he was going to come after them or not. And he did. He pursued them to kill them. And God allowed that water to crash on top of them and took out Pharaoh, took out those who would would seek to destroy his people. And God's people were free from the slavery and were headed into the land that had been promised to their father Abraham. And maybe you remember what happened after that. They didn't go in. The people in the land who were already in the promised land were big and scary. So God's people refused to go. And God was angry, and they experienced, they had just experienced God's miraculous deliverance. And then they followed that with distrusting his goodness and his ability. They even accused him of leading them out of Egypt, just let them die. And that idea came from someone. There were 12 spies who were sent into the land. Ten of them come back and say, we can't do this. Two of, them, two of them came back and said, yeah, the people are big, but God is with us. We can do this. But the ten convinced all the rest of God's people that God, the God who just lived, these were people who walked on dry ground through a sea, and those ten people convinced them that God couldn't bring them into that land. Their, their sin and their disobedience, their rebellion hurt them and hurt others. They were delivered from Egypt, but they died in the wilderness. Believer, don't let the negativity of others cause you to doubt God's goodness and miss out on his blessings of mercy, peace, and love. Jude goes on in verse 6 and says, And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. And this is the first scoop of pet ice cream in our passage today. There are going to be three. Uh, It's not that it's bad. It's just hard. And it's it's hard to interpret. There are different interpretations. Uh, Our scholar friends disagree on exactly who these angels are, who it is that Jude's talking about here. And if you do research on that, you can wander down some really cool rabbit trails and make some really cool connections. And we're not going to do that today. Um, most of our scholar friends think that Jude is either referring to the angels who rebelled against God and be, with Satan and became demons, or they believe that the sons of God who are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, he, they believe that those are angels who sinned by having inappropriate relations with women. And I'm not sure which interpretation is best, but the point we need to see is that rebelling against God's order and plan is sinful and corrupts more people. Regardless of the interpretation, we can see how those angels brought destruction on themselves and on others. We need to remember that we're still fighting those demons today. Their rebellion is still affecting us. In Ephesians six twelve, Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And as we sin... Our sin ripples into the lives of others, leaving destruction and death in its wake. Verse 7, Jude says, Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And Sodom and Gomorrah were real cities that you can read about in Genesis 18 and 19 And Abraham had a nephew whose name was Lot, and Lot lived there, and while he lived there, he was visited by two angels, and the men of that city came to Lot's house and tried to force Lot to give them those two men because they wanted to they were going to rape them. And they didn't know they were angels at the time, but and if you read that story, horrifically, Lot in in his panic, not knowing what to do, offers his two daughters instead of those two men. It the whole story is there's a compounding of sin taking place. But thankfully, God rescues Lot and his family through the angels, and then he destroys those cities. And those cities became a visible, physical reminder of God's judgment for his people. They saw the land that was Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the sexual sin and perversion led to their destruction. And we talked about sexual sin briefly last week. I want to pause again here because sexual sin is so widespread in our culture and also in our churches some would tell us that fulfilling our sexual desire is just like eating when you're hungry. It's just an appetite or it's an itch that needs to be scratched, but that's not true. The Bible says that when a man and woman are married, the two become one flesh. They are united. The thing that seals marriage is consummating that marriage through sex. Sex bonds people in a way that other physical interactions do not. And I think I, I think there's a good example of this, but it's... Uh, it's difficult, and so I want to preface it by saying I'm going to talk about abuse, like physical and sexual abuse. And if you've ever been physically or sexually abused, then we are sorry. And that grieves us and grieves the heart of God, and God never wishes anyone to endure that. And we hope that you've been able to tell that truth, that the people who did it were held accountable for it, and that you have sought help or are receiving counseling or something to help you recover from that. But I bring that up. I bring this up because I think recognizing the difference between a rape victim and an assault victim helps us understand why sex is more than just sex, as culture would tell us. If sex were purely physical, then victims of sexual abuse and physical abuse would have similar reactions. But they don't. They they report differently. They're affected differently after that traumatic event. It, Rape is a more horrific crime. There's more recorded and reported psychological damage from victims of rape than victims of physical abuse. It's different from just being beaten up. And I I say that, hopefully that, I know it's a weird analogy, but hopefully it helps you see that sex is more than just this physical thing. There's something more happening here. What we do with our, our bodies matters. Sexual activity is a good gift from God, but it needs to be kept in its proper place between a man and a woman in marriage. Your sin does not just stay in the confines of your individual life, but it runs rampant through your life and the lives of the people around you. Jude's going to talk about these false teachers now. He's given some examples and then he turns to talk about the false teachers in verse 8. He says, in the same way, these people relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reflect, reject authority and slander glorious ones. So instead of teaching from God's word, they're relying on their dreams and visions, their own interpretation of things and then teaching people that. Rather than being anchored in God's word, as Mike reminded us to be this morning, they're they're putting their own spin on things and leading people in whatever direction they feel. It says they're defiling their own flesh. They're satisfying their physical desires without concern for how that's affecting other people. They reject authority. Like verse 4 says that they reject Jesus, our master and Lord. They slander glorious ones. And we're not sure exactly what this means, but it probably that they don't they don't take angels and demons seriously as the principalities and powers that paul mentions in ephesians 6 if we minimize angels and demons to the cartoon version that sits on your shoulder and has that back and forth conversation then we're 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 missing out on the significance of god's messengers and angels and we're also putting ourselves in danger of being manipulated by the enemy Verse 9 continues this thought. He says, Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And this is our second scoop of pet ice cream. Um, still, it's good for us, but it's not exactly what we're expecting. This story is found nowhere else in Scripture. Uh, it's probably from something that was called The Assumption of Moses, a writing called The Assumption of Moses. And we don't even have a complete copy of The Assumption of Moses today. The story's not in the Bible. But in that writing, in that story, there was apparently a dispute between Michael and Satan over Moses' body, which had been buried by the Lord, which is a really beautiful thing. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 34. When Moses died, God carried his body away and buried him himself. And no one else knew where he was. And Jude uses this story that was known by his readers to say to them that even the strongest angel didn't challenge Satan alone. He wasn't dismissive of who Satan was. In that argument, Michael, who is a powerful angel, isn't, isn't flippant in his interaction with the enemy because he knows Satan is powerful. Not that he's powerful like God, but that he's not to be disrespected. And instead, Michael says to him, the Lord rebuke you. And that is a quote from Zechariah 3.2 where God says this exact thing to Satan. The Lord rebuke you. So Michael is fight, in this story, Michael is fighting the enemy just like Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness. He's fighting the enemy with scripture. May we know God's word so well that we can resist the enemy with scripture that we've memorized, meditated on, and stored in our hearts. Verse 10 But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And that they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals. By these things, they are destroyed. These false teachers are not taking God's word or God's messengers seriously. They're they're not taking the enemy seriously. They're acting on impulse. And our impulses are not to be trusted. If I acted on impulse every day, I would eat a whole sleeve of Pillsbury cookie dough and I would drink a half gallon of milk every day when I got home from work. I, I love Pillsbury cookies and I love milk, but that would be bad for me. The, the longer you live, the more you understand that your impulses are usually not what is best for you. If you don't learn to control your impulses to sin, you're going to teach other people to sin. And then you'll watch that sin multiply in their lives and then through the next generation and the next generation. And God will not let sin go unpunished. Again, since false teachers and those led astray by them will be judged, believers must watch themselves and do what they can to protect others. Judgment is coming from God against evil. False teachers spread evil and lead others to believe lies, and they will be judged for that, and their judgment will be final. Verse 11, he says, Woe to them. That sounds like an Old Testament prophet. Woe woe just means like sorrow and distress sorrow to these people for they have gone the way of Cain they've plunged into Balaam's error for profit they've perished in Korah's rebellion Cain is Cain killed his brother Abel and then he was sent away from his family he was sent away from God's people and then Balaam refused Balaam is a weird story because there's a donkey that talks Balaam was this yeah It's cool. Uh, But anyway, if you read about Balaam, he was asked by the king of Moab to curse God's people because Moab was scared of God's people. He's like, hey, I need you to curse these people. And Balaam would not do it. And he refused to curse them. But the king of Moab was offering him money. And so after he refused, after Balaam refused to curse him, he found this loophole where he was like, well, I can still give you some advice on how to take out God's people And he told them that, hey, you need to send women into the land, entice them with your women. So send women in here, like send prostitutes in here. And then you need to introduce them to false gods, to to other idols. And he gave that advice and he gained financially from giving that advice. And then later, Balaam is, is killed by God's people when they repented and came to their senses. And then Korah, Korah didn't like that Moses was the chosen leader of God's people. And so he led a group of people in rebellion against Moses. And there's a whole crazy scene in Numbers where that goes down. But at the end of it, God is so frustrated with Korah for leading that rebellion that the earth literally opens up under his... They were living in tents because they were nomadic at the time. But it opens up under his property, swallows him and his family, and then closes back up over top of him. That, that is a swift judgment. So each of these examples are showing us the the judgment that is coming for sin. Like these who lead others away from the goodness of God, these false teachers in verse 12 says these people are dangerous reefs, reefs at your love feast. I don't know what your translations say, but it's just fellowship meals between believers. So they're dangerous reefs at these fellowship meals and they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. And they are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. People who lead others away from God are like hidden reefs that destroy your boat, that that sink your life. They're like shepherds who do not actually care about their sheep. They are like clouds that promise rain from the sky but deliver nothing. Just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden, they will tell you that they're offering you a better life. But what they're offering you in reality is death. Boasting in their sin, they provide no guidance for those who need it. And then it says the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. They're also called twice dead and scriptures teach us that all people are going to die, but Jesus delivers us from death, and there's a second death that comes. If you don't believe the gospel, the second death is being separated from God forever, and so these people are, are twice dead, and then there's the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It's a reference to a final judgment, a place of separation from light, separation from God. This is a reference to hell. Hell is a place of suffering where people will be separated from God forever, not because God wants to torture people, but because God needs to contain sin and rebellion. One day God's patience with us will be done and Jesus will return to judge the world and those who believe that he is the risen son of God and the Lord of all will be with him forever. And those who reject him will be separated from him forever. And many of us hate the idea of hell, because when we think of hell, we think of people in our lives who we love and care about who've rejected the gospel. Hell should make us weep. We should never use it as uh, like, to hell with that person. That should never cross our lips if we really understand what we're saying when we say that. We, we should not want anyone to experience that final judgment. Like God, we should desire all to be saved. But hell should also give us hope. I'm going to read this quote from John Mark Comer, which I think, hopefully, is helpful for us here. He says, There is coming a day when Jesus puts evil six feet under the ground, when the world is finally free, and it's because of Jesus' love and because of his wrath, his passionate antagonism against evil in all its forms, that we can look forward to this glorious future. Hell teaches us that God is not going to let evil win. That oppressors and villains may have their day here, but that they will not go unpunished. And because God is going to handle sin once and for all, we can hope for a future with him where there will be no more sin, which means there will be no more lies. There will be no more gossip, no more lust, no more greed, no more selfishness, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. Because God is going to lock those things away forever. Judgment, there there will be judgment that is final for those who reject God. But judgment is for all people, for all sin, all evil, all unrighteousness, all rebellion. Verse 14 it says, it was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, and this is our last scoop of pet ice cream. It's not bad, but it's it's weird and hard for us. So Enoch is mentioned as being a righteous man in a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. says that Enoch walked with God and then was no more because God took him. So he never died. He just went, went to heaven with the Lord. Um, and you may have heard of something called the book of Enoch. And I, I think last week I mentioned some of these videos where people try to, you may see them online where people are talking about secret knowledge. And I see the book of Enoch pop up a lot. And I've had conversations with people who aren't believers who will reference and be like, oh, I read the book of Enoch. As if it's some kind of special thing where it was excluded from the Bible because the Christian leaders didn't want you to know this other truth. But it was excluded from the Bible for a reason. It, there are some things that are good in there, like what? Jude quotes right here but there's some stuff in the book of Enoch that is not is it doesn't line up with the rest of God's word there's a reason it was not included in scripture but right here Jude quotes from that book as we continue in verse 14 he says Enoch prophesied look the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Now, scholars do, do not believe that Jude thinks the book of Enoch is, should be a part of God's word. Most likely, again, Jude is quoting this because he knows this book carries some kind of significance in the minds of his readers, and so he's pulling from that to support his argument. And this prophecy that he mentions right here, it it's it lines up with what we read in the rest of scripture, that God is going to judge sin. He's going to judge sinners. He's going to judge sinful acts. And again, this is not about God paying people back for their sin, but about God preserving life for all who would receive it. It's locking sin away from believers forever. If God wasn't angry over sin, if he wasn't going to do something about it, he couldn't he couldn't be trusted. If he didn't hate the Jewish Holocaust, if he didn't hate Rwandan genocide, if he didn't hate evil possessive slavery from our own country's history, if he didn't hate mass murder of innocent people that's happening all over the world, if he didn't hate the rape of men, women, boys, and girls, if he didn't hate the sex slave industry that fuels the porn industry, if God didn't detest those things, he would not be good. And because he is good, and because he is God, he doesn't just hate them. He's going to end them. He's going to bring judgment on them, and hell is part of that. But hopefully, when you think about judgment coming and God putting an end to all evil, hopefully you know the unfortunate truth that if God puts an end to all evil, that means he's going to have to put an end to you, too. To me, too. You're not... Adolf Hitler, but you hate that person who stabbed you in the back all those years ago. You're not running a sex trade, but you've lusted after others in your mind and you've sought porn where you can find it. You're not selling drugs, but you are teaching others that it's okay to drink excessively when you're really stressed out. You're not beating your kids, but you're neglecting to raise them in the fear of the Lord because you're addicted to social media. You're not bowing to golden statues, but you worship something other than God each day when you choose to do what you want instead of what he's told you to do. And I want to be clear that I am talking about myself there too. We want to act like we're good people because we're not evil like the murderers and the lawyers and those who put toilet paper on backwards. We, we want to act like we don't deserve hell because we aren't really that bad. I'm going to read this quote from C.S. Lewis. And it maybe offers a different perspective on this than, than you've heard before. But he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. When we choose self over God, we are pushing God out. And since hell is separation from God, each time we sin, we are pushing him out a little more and we are welcoming a version of hell into our lives. Just like these false teachers in verse 16, it says, these people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires, their mouths, utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. And this is us discontented grumblers living selfish lives, bragging about ourselves, using other people for our own gain we are broken and sinful people and that is why jesus came into the world he came to set us free He came to conquer sin and death like God promised Eve he would do. And he came first to identify with us, to live among us, and to show us how to love God and love other people. And then he passed through death in our place, destroying death from the inside. And now forgiveness of sin is offered in his name to all who would believe. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, then, friend, you are saved. There will be no great final judgment for you because your sin was paid for by the living Jesus Christ who experienced the equivalent of an eternity in hell separated from God so that you could be set free from your sin and your rebellion and your selfishness. Friends, believe this today for the first time or believe it again. Remind yourself of it again. Jesus is the resurrected Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is Lord. Worship Him. Praise Him. Honor Him. Point each other to Him. We have the choice To invite more hell into our lives. And we also have the choice. We have the option to invite more of God's kingdom into our lives. When we sin, we are pushing God out of that space in that moment in our lives. But when we obey him and we pursue him, we are inviting him in. We are getting more of him. When we obey and pursue, we get more of the presence of God. It increases in our lives. Since false teachers and those led astray by them will be judged. Believers must watch themselves and do what they can to protect others. Be faithful. Don't be overwhelmed. Verse 17, Jude says, but you, dear friends. And we got to remember he's writing about false teachers, but he's writing to dear friends. Just like he said in verse 3. He says, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. So again, remember, there will always be false teachers. God is not surprised by them. God is not worried about them. He will handle them for spreading their lies. And sometimes, though, weirdly, false teaching can be helpful to our faith because it forces us to dig into what we really believe. When popular pastors started writing books about how hell doesn't really exist, I was forced to... To search the scriptures to see what it said about hell and find that God is clear that it is a real place where those who do not want God will be given what they want. They'll be given a place without Him to their torment. And when we hear preachers telling us that God wants blessing and happiness and For us without any suffering we're forced to the scriptures and we see that god tells us explicitly in every single book of the new testament That those who follow jesus will suffer for following jesus The world hated him And because the world hated him the world will hate us when we follow him So as we recognize these kinds of false teachings, we want to encourage our brothers and sisters to avoid those Christians belong to god and also to one another We're responsible to help each other be clear on who we are in Christ and what we believe. Adam and Eve were unclear about who they were and about what they believed about God. And as a result, the enemy was able to deceive them and lead them astray. He told them that God didn't love them or want what's best for them. And they believed his lies because they forgot that they were the beloved of God. They forgot that they were meant to worship him with their lives. judgment came into the world through Adam. But righteousness comes into the world through Jesus. We're going to pray. We're going to take some time to reflect. I know this has been a heavy morning. I thank you for bearing with us as we walk through this passage together. We want to take some time to reflect on God's word and what the Spirit may be saying to you. Confess if you need to confess. Sing if you need to sing. I've got a couple application questions that may be helpful if you're trying to figure out how to wrestle with this. The first one being, do you minimize or overemphasize God's judgment? Have you led anyone astray by your sin that you need to apologize to? And who do you know that's being led away and how can you protect them? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. As we spend time reflecting on your judgment, we ask that you would help us to see you as holy and we would see the connection between your judgment and your great love for us, your great love for the world. Jesus came into the world to set us free from sin. Not, he didn't come into the world to condemn us, but he will come again and judgment will come with him. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us, for his broken body it was broken for us. We ask that you help us to believe it. God, help us to see clearly the sin in our lives so that by your Holy Spirit we can reject it and we can walk in faith and in newness of life. Change us. Make us like you. Help us invite other people into the joy and the freedom that is found in you and you alone. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.